This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Philips, a leading health technology company focused on improving people's health and well-being through meaningful innovation. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning, and uh, thank you for being here. Welcome to the Washington Post. I'm Francis Steed-Sellers, a senior writer here. And I am delighted this morning to be able to welcome Secretary Javier Becerra, who is from the Department of Health and Human Services. And Secretary Becerra, I think last time we spoke, it was in the midst of the pandemic, it was on Zoom. I'm so pleased to welcome you right here in person to the Washington Post. It's great to be able to do this uh, in person like this. Uh, Some people thought it would never happen again. Fortunately, a lot of work's been done. Welcome. Um, my first question is really a big picture question about climate and health. Tell me about how climate change, changes in our weather patterns are affecting human health. So we've, we've known this for quite some time. It's just that those of us who have the means can avoid it, absorb it, and go on with life. Those who live on the extreme, those less fortunate, those who are in the places that are getting hit hardest environmentally uh, have known it for quite some time. Um, my daughter, not to give her a plug, but uh, she works for the Lung Association. She just did a great piece on farm workers and how climate is affecting them. These are folks who are always having to do the hardest work, but now with climate change, you're talking about whether that is more hotter than ever and it is more extreme and it is causing more death Uh, Farm working is perhaps one of the most dangerous, if not the most dangerous, uh, occupation. So it gets worse when you have to deal with heat that is so extreme that you've never really faced it before. And so what we're trying to do is make sure everyone recognizes we've known this for quite some time. Those who are uh, least fortunate are the first and worst hit, and they're telegraphing to us, we've got to do something. So you have taken it upon yourself to task a new office with dealing with some of these problems. Tell me how it became such a priority for you and what you hope to do through this office. Well, again, as uh, as the quote said, uh, the changes we're seeing today in our day-to-day lives as a result of climate aren't just affecting our environment, they're they're affecting our health. Again, those of us who've got the, the resources can fend away the problems a little longer, but it's coming. Uh, but if you go into certain communities, uh, they're out of water. They turn on their tap, nothing comes out. Right. Uh, there are places where the heat index has surpassed 110, mm-hmm. and they're now working outside in 115, 118 degree weather. Uh, how do you avoid that? If my job is to watch over the health of 330 million people, how do I not deal with climate and try to say I'm doing the best I can on health? And it follows the, what I did in the, in the Attorney General's office in California, where we established the office uh, to deal with climate change and health equity. So this new office will be taking on these very specific challenges across the country with a particular view to health equity. Very much so. But it's not so much to, not because we see that there's inequity in the way we deal with climate change. It's the fact that those are the folks who are getting hit hardest with their health. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense if you're going to deal with climate change, you have to deal with those who are, getting, who are getting hit hardest. And so we have a sub-office that deals with environmental justice because we know day in, day out, there are things that human beings can do to make life better, 
And so there should be justice for those who we already know the climate. Mother Nature is already sending us messages. There's no reason why we should let uh, human beings make it even worse. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about preparedness because it feels as if in the past few years we've been hit by one major weather disaster after another. And let's think about 2021 when Ida came into New Orleans and, and we had the threat of, we know what can happen to New Orleans with a major hurricane. We don't have to look back very far for that. But then we had a pandemic too. So how do you manage these kinds of twin threats and the pandemic, of course, made it very extreme, but there's often complicating factors in any natural disaster. What we've learned through COVID and what we're going to see more vividly through climate change is that we cannot have a public health system that is a patchwork of good health and bad health. Uh, and unfortunately, because the Constitution left the authority for health care to the states, we have a patchwork. Uh, and COVID was perfect proof of that. Uh, there is no way we will deal well with any pandemic in the future, and no way we will be able to weave together the infrastructure that we need to deal with climate change if we don't weave together the 50 states in dealing with healthcare, which means we have to have a universal system of public health. I'd That's like to ask you a little bit more about that, because when you talk about it's not just 50 states and one representative for public health in each state, there are county and smaller health departments. So North Carolina, for example, can have something like 100 different. Yeah. And there are tribal governments that operate right. their healthcare system. There are territorial governments. All of them are attached but only so, so long as they want to be. So for a quick, a quick example, when it came to COVID, getting the data that let us know where to send the vaccines, where to send the treatments, depended on the states providing us the data showing us where the illness was. We were able to get that during the public health emergency because we had the national authority under the public health emergency to request this, instruct the states to give us that information. Once the public health emergency came down, it's voluntary. The states don't have to give us any data on CODA. They don't want to. And so we're dependent on their voluntary goodwill to give us the data we need so we have eyes on where the illness is. So pandemics, other illnesses don't respect borders. And I want to ask you a little bit about the U.S. role in these global challenges. And let me read some WHO numbers, World Health Organization numbers, estimating there could be 250,000 deaths each year based on climate alone. I'm guessing that may be a low estimate and costs of between two and four billion a year um, related to climate, so health costs related to climate. What's the U.S. government role in managing these global challenges? Where's your leverage? What can you do with the amount of technology and expertise in this country? That question uh, spans all the different issues we face, not just climate change, right. but pandemics, Absolutely. Uh, universal health care. What's the role? Well, we have to try to weave together the states. The, the most typical way we weave together the states is by giving them money. Medicare, Medicaid, perfect examples. We would not have states doing what they do for low-income Americans. Maybe they do it on their own. But the reason they provide their residents with Medicaid it's because the federal government pays a, a very large portion of Medicaid. We get in the game by giving states money. And what we have to continue to do is make those investments because it's wise for us to do so. Uh, the, the issue will be, will Congress continue to give us the resources we need to make sure that we deal with health care not as a patchwork of care, but as a woven together system that threads us all together? So let's talk about one of the 
the big pieces of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. How does that, in your view, fit with this goal of creating a more coherent, less fragmented health system? Well, on top of all the aspects of the Inflation Reduction Act that aren't within the purview of HHS because they deal with infrastructure, uh, cleaner energy, all of that's going to help make sure our health is better. But the IRA also gives us an opportunity to get more in the game and start to do things like, for example, we set up an office that essentially is going to create a heat index. It's essentially going to provide a dashboard so that communities know where the hot spots are to, uh, forgive the pun, but all the hot spots, spots are when it comes to climate change. And so people will have a chance to see, are things getting really bad in my neighborhood, in my community when it comes to heat or cold? Uh, we're trying to do a much better job of leveraging low-income housing uh, tax credits. And we're also trying to make sure that the program for low-income folks when it comes to low-income heating and energy costs is available in a more dispersed manner so that the states can reach all communities. There are ways that we can help, but the most important thing we can do is weave together our system of health care so that no one is left behind. So there are two buzzwords that come to me right away, climate justice and the one you've mentioned a number of times, health equity. Um, talk to me a little bit about the bridge, about, about those, the activism, the movements that might be able to improve health conditions for people who, as you've pointed out, are disadvantaged when it comes to coping with the climate change. I'll go back to farm workers. Uh, we have states where farm workers are beginning to lose the rights to have water breaks uh, where they you mean will, they, they have to work all day just no break for yeah and they are not allowed to take a break um, that would be an extreme direction to go in when we know it it should be just the opposite uh, we have situations where people are working my father was a road construction worker he laid a lot of the freeways during the heyday of freeway construction in California. Asphalt, concrete, you ever laid it, uh, uh, asphalt? Asphalt by itself is over 100 degrees when it's, it's hot. Uh, when you put that on top of the fact that in, in California, Sacramento, where he, we, he worked, uh, it would get to over 100 degrees during the summer, you're talking about massive heat hitting you on a personal level. Uh, today, Sacramento is far hotter than it was when my dad was working. How do you deal with that? Uh, and so our office is trying to make sure that first we give people the data they need, states the data they need, so they understand what's going on. So they can create laws that don't prevent someone from taking a, a water break, but give them more opportunity to get that opportunity. Uh, we're hoping what we also do is weave together the state so that we have a more unified system of healthcare because we can't continue to have these gaps in our system. That's where health equity comes in so important. We are trying to make investments in areas where we know that there are gaps. COVID is a great example. The vaccine, when I got into office about a month later, after about a month of seeing the data coming in, rolling in on vaccine uptake, by May of 2021, about two thirds of white American adults had had at least one shot of the vaccine. By then, within just a few months of the vaccine being out, less than 50% of black Americans, 50% of Latino Americans had gotten the shot. We were already beginning to see the disparity grow. Mm. And we said, you can't do that. So we did something that becomes very important, not just for uh, climate change or uh, pandemics, but we went to where people were. Instead of waiting for them to come to us, we went to where they were. And by January of 2022, 
Over 90% of white adult Americans had received their first vaccine. Over 90% of black American adults had received their vaccine. Over 90% of Latino adult Americans, Asian American, Native American. We had, we had erased the disparity because we didn't just wait for folks to come get the free vaccine. We went to where people were who weren't accustomed to having insurance or aren't accustomed to having someone come to them and saying, hey, we've got a great product. Don't worry, you don't have to pay. So you've referenced your, your daughter and your father and, and your experience in California, but I'd love to know just quickly how what you're doing now builds on the experience you had as California Attorney General. So uh, I, I will go farther so I can make sure I mention my mom who just turned 90. On, uh, Good, Sunday, welcome, happy birthday. On Sunday, uh, because uh, so much of what I do is based on what I learned from them. And my mom would always say to me, mijo, es mejor prevenir que remediar. Son, it's, it's always better to prevent than to remediate. And I always took that with me. Uh, Frederick Douglass said it really well about 160, 70 years ago, and he said, it is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Wow. We're trying to repair broken men and women today, whether it's climate change, whether it's getting them uh, relieved of COVID, whether it's just getting them basic health care, when we should be building strong children. And so as AG, one of the things that I tried to do was avoid waiting till things got broken and try to prevent them from occurring. And so we would go out there. We wouldn't just sue. We did a lot of that against the previous administration. But uh, what we would try to do is go to communities and tell them, you know you're about to violate the Clean Air Act. And if you don't make this change, we're going to have to stop you. So how about we work together to make sure your project, your uh, de development can continue forward. And at the same time, you're respecting the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and so forth. And so mejor prevenir que remediar. <clears throat> and it's something that we carry with us today at HHS. Pick one innovation for me that you think is most promising in managing, again, this, this problem of health equity and climate injustice. Well, the fact that we are uh, treating climate change is something that requires us to look at health equity. Because uh, there are, as I said, communities who today are, are suffering the dire consequences of uh, climate change. They can't afford to just turn on the switch to the air conditioner. Uh, they can't afford to take uh, that shade break uh, the way some of us could. They can't afford to even stay home to get a paycheck. And so what we're doing is we're going into communities and we're using community health care centers, the federally qualified community health care centers, as our point of contact because we have access. We touch FQHCs. And we know if we work with them to provide them with resources, they're going to touch the communities that we're most concerned about. And so what we're doing is working with them so that they can reach into communities through the, the trusted voices in those communities to try to access some of those services. So if you need to have access to the vaccine, we, we're working with them. But at the same time, if you need to know more about how to stay safe in these hotter or colder uh, seasons, your community health care center will now be a point of a contact. By the way, we're also trying to use schools. Uh, we're trying to put a Medicaid dollar into our schools directly through the school districts and have the school districts essentially have some of their schools become health care providers. It's a process that takes a lot of work. It's not easy to check all the boxes to qualify for Medicaid. So I want to ask you, pivot slightly, but we have this enormous crisis in life expectancy in this country. Yes. The U.S. is being outperformed by countries that spend far less on health per capita, countries like Portugal, Chile, Costa Rica. What's the U.S. government role in trying to reverse that trend? And I know, you know, this is a long trend, an administration is four years or maybe eight years at best, but what, what is your role? What can you do? 
connect the dots. Don't let us have those gaps where people fall. The reason we have a low, a declining uh, 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 longevity rate is because COVID hit people so hard in certain communities. And so instead of dying at 78, they died at 48 because their health wasn't I critical. want to challenge you a bit on that because yes, COVID is one thing, but this decline in life expectancy predates that and is related to chronic illness, all sorts of deaths of despair and drugs as well. So COVID is not the only problem. And Francis, I point out COVID because it, it showed us what we should have already known, that okay. we've got gaps in our system. I there imagine. are people who aren't accessing healthcare when they should. COVID was perfect proof, but you're right. Uh, when you are coming in to uh, see a doctor for the first time in your 60s and you've got diabetes, I guarantee you, you're gonna be far worse off health-wise than someone who goes in at 20 or 30 because they have always had health insurance. And so those disparities start to grow. And that's what we were seeing with vaccines on COVID. We were starting to see the natural disparities that we see in this country start to grow, principally because we have a system that doesn't rely on one set of eyes trying to say, let's keep our community, our national community safe. We have 50 sets of eyes saying, let's keep our community safe. One last question. In my reporting on health uh, inequities around the world, one of the things that's come is, is the importance of primary care. This country also has a crisis in primary care. Your HHS said it would have an initiative to strengthen primary care. When are we going to learn about that and what will it involve? Well, we're already rolling and yeah. we're doing some, but we need our friends down the street in Congress to give us the resources to fully make it happen. So, for example, you're going to hear some great stuff and some not so good stuff on maternal health care. The fact that women in the black and Native American community are two or three times more likely to die during birth or thereafter than a white woman. That's crazy, that should not be happening in, in this country today. The fact that you still have kids who, who can die of a toothache, Diamante Driver in the state of Maryland about 20 years ago, started off as a toothache, got worse, became an infection, abscess. By the time they tried to take care of it, parents didn't have insurance, he died. Uh, that's what we have going on. We can change that, but we have to treat healthcare not as something that's based on your income or based on where you're living, regardless of your income, zip code, status, you should have access to health care. When we finally learn that primary care means universal care, we'll get there. That's why, for example, we're trying to make sure primary care physicians, your family doctor, your internist, your, your go-to doctor that you see, not only knows about your, your broken bone and your cold, but also about your mental health. Because today, most primary care physicians, family doctors, are taught very little, if maybe nothing, in medical school about mental health. And today we know the stresses of life, many of them caused by climate change, have to get treated early. Prevenir que remediar, prevent it, rather than try to remediate. Thank you so much, Secretary Becerra. I cannot think of a more important message to end that on with the praise of primary care and family physicians. It's so important for us all, and thank you for addressing these broad questions. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. 
Good morning, everyone. Thrilled to be here and to have the opportunity. You know, actually, we we're just talking behind stage, um, and my dad's in surgery right now. And the first thing I asked my sister, um, she's there with my mom, is um, what Philips products were there, and, and that made me feel so good. She she num she named each one of them, um, and I know that innovation and AI and patient safety and quality is at the heart of what we do. But it's really important to me just today, and so I could not think of a more important question and topic today. Um, I'm Nicole Taylor-Smith. I'm global lead for regulatory science and policy at Phillips. And I am so grateful to have Professor um uh, Professor Glenn Cohen this morning from Harvard Law School. He's also associate dean, um, and he's an expert um, on artificial intelligence um, and all things FDA law. Um, um, and I'll just welcome you today. Thank you so much for, being, for having me. It's great to be here with all of you. Um, and, and thank you guys for being with us today. Um, I know you spent a lot of your research and your time on these really important questions, questions that are really vital. As technology changes, um, so do the questions on how do we regulate these products? How do we ensure um, safety and efficacy of these products and making sure that those who regulate the products um, have the right information that they need um, and, and that we're, we're ready to um, ensure those products are safe. So maybe I'll ask um, just a simple grounding question. So what are the biggest opportunities um, with, with new types of technology and this type of technology um, um, today? Fantastic. So there's a lot of excitement about what I think of as very high-tech medicine. So there was a uh, paper published, I think, in Nature last week about uh, surgeons in the Netherlands, brain surgeons, while operating on a tumor, the ability in the early stages of a surgery to actually analyze the tumor and determine how far they have to go, how much to cut. And the idea of doing this in real time and helping patients in these incredibly vulnerable moments really thrive, that's extremely exciting. But if anything, I think too much of our focus in terms of the media, in terms of the hype cycle, is on pushing these frontiers of making the very best medicine even better. Because in my view, a lot of the opportunity and a lot of the benefit of medical AI is actually in two other areas. One is what I call just automating drudgery. It turns out, especially in the American medical system, there's a lot of paperwork, there's a lot of forms, there's a lot of payment questions. And the idea that we could take excellent healthcare teams and redistribute some of their time away from that towards patients would be incredibly exciting. I don't know about you, but when I see my physician, I get a best 15 minutes, mm -hmm. and the idea that I could spend more time asking the questions I have, so that'd be very exciting. The other thing, though, I would say is while pushing frontiers is exciting, a lot of the value is about democratizing the expertise we already have. So if we could take just an average dermatologist in the United States and basically scale up the ability to deliver the services she can deliver, to rural communities, to the low and middle income countries, just around the world, that would be incredibly exciting and would add a huge amount of value. So we should definitely push those frontiers, but I wanna make sure we don't lose the opportunity to see where there's a lot of value that can be gained. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Absolutely so much opportunity, but what are some of the risks that we need to consider? Yeah, so I, I joke that I'm trained as a lawyer and an ethicist, so I specialize in bringing rain to any uh, picnic <laughs> or parade. So let me do that. But I want to say to the very beginning before I do that, right? You know, so I grew up in Canada. Wayne Gretzky once said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So there's a way That's in one of the biggest... Book. 
concerns I have is that we're going to lose out on the opportunity to do really great things. So I don't want the legal and ethical questions I'm going to raise right now to be, I want us to think about how we deal with them, not as kind of walls that can't be uh, kind of overcome and that can't be kind of thinking thoughtfully about what to do. Okay, so what are those challenges? I often say you should think about the life cycle of building medical AI. The very beginning, there's this question about where you get the data. AI is very data hungry. Mm -hmm. So things to think about are, um, did you ask patients explicitly to use their data? Did you de-identify the data to some extent such that we're protecting their privacy? What governance role do patients have, especially when you're dealing with a rare disease group or minoritized community? What kind of role do they have to express themselves? Also questions about bias. How good is the data you have? We know the collection of data in the United States reflects essentially who gets health care. And as a result, there's huge populations that are not well represented. I often say, as a mid-40s white guy in Boston, I am like dead center in every medical AI training set. But that's not true for many other people in the US, let alone in the world. So how do we think about this? So that's all the first phase, just getting the data. Then you have the data and you're trying to build and validate a model. How do you know when your model is good enough that it can be used in human patients and we can actually see how it actually performs? Which regulator or which combination of regulators are going to be the one to kind of oversee this and how are they going to coordinate? And how do we kind of build trust and transparency while also protecting intellectual property? Because there's a real uh, tendency, I think, to hoard the data, to hoard what you're doing in order to protect trade secrecy. Okay. Then you have a model, you validate it, and now you want to use it in real world settings with real patients. So among the questions to ask are, what if something goes wrong? Who's liable? Is it the, is it the physician? Is it the hospital system? Is it the developer? How do we adjust for that? And how do we build a liability system that's thoughtful about innovation? Questions about what you tell patients, right? So do you have an informed consent process where patients are told the AI is helping me and here is how it's helping? And again, who's overseeing collecting data in the real world to understand whether it works as well in the real world as it does in theory and in the lab? Finally, you've cleared all those hurdles. It's great. You have something that's adding value. It's making patients much better. Mm -hmm. And now the question is, who has access to it? How do we ensure that access is going to be equitable, that everybody who helped contribute through their data really has a chance of having access to the thing that's going to change their lives? And I view that as kind of an overview of all the obstacles in between. Yeah, just a few things to name. So a couple things to solve. So um, as you know, we both are lawyers with a lawyer background. but. Um, I'm a former FDA official. I was there for over eight years. Um, I think about things and sort of how do we actually take this and put it into regulation? How do we have re regulation that helps to not only um, promote innovation, because that's really important to all of our patients to get the, the best products, life-sustaining, and all of the innovation, but we also want to protect them. And how does FDA and other agencies globally do this in a way that is going to strike the right balance? And a super important question to both of us, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I want to start by acknowledging this is a really hard problem, yeah. right? So while some of the stuff I do, I criticize FDA. They're an agency that I think has done a huge amount in this space. And when regulators around the world look to see who is kind of on the leading edge, it's FDA. 
Now that said, what makes this problem so hard is I view the problem of medical artificial intelligence very different from the other kinds of things that FDA regulates. In particular with the small molecule, right, it has a physiological kind of effect on the body. And yes, our bodies are different, but you can study it and you can examine and you can understand. With an artificial intelligence, you're really talking about a system a system that involves physicians and how they use it, a system that involves hospital systems who decide whether to purchase, how to kind of validate, a system that involves insurers deciding what to pay or what not to pay, and a system that affects me as a patient in terms of how it affects my daily life and how my life goes on. And so you're taking a regulator that looks at small molecules and tries to determine if they're safe and effective, and you're asking it, really what I want you to do is figure out this entire okay. system. And as a result, I think that just poses some real challenges. Now, one of the most interesting challenges, I think, is as I said, there's this real problem that much of the data on which medical artificial intelligence is trained on may not be appropriate for where it's deployed. This is sometimes yeah. called contextual bias. In an ideal world, you can solve this with fine tuning on the back end by having an artificial intelligence uh, agent that learns as it goes. It says, you know, you were trained in Mass General Hospital in Boston. Now I want to deploy this in Nashville, right? Or I want to deploy this in a rural setting. Or I want to deploy this in India. It would be terrific to be able to have a system that learns as it goes. But from a regulatory perspective, you now face the question. I looked at it when it came out. Now it's learning on the job. It's no longer locked. Mm -hmm. It's adaptive. When do I know it's changed enough that I need to re-review it or that I can monitor it? Who feeds back that data? Also this question about the integration at the level of a particular hospital, right? Mm -hmm. It may turn out that for some physicians, for example, they will overcorrect or undercorrect as to what the artificial intelligence recommends, some of the integration into different healthcare systems and different staffing. There's just a huge amount of variables, much more so than with small molecules, with traditional drugs. Yeah. And that's just a real challenge for the agency. The agency is doing the best it can. I'll just say one more challenge, which is to say, I tell people if they think FDA is looking at every instance of medical artificial intelligence, they're completely wrong. Because of the way Congress wrote the 21st Century Cures Act, because of the way uh, its own uh, enforcement discretion and review discretion, FDA has used it, a huge amount of medical artificial intelligence being run in hospitals, no government agency ever looks at it. And instead, we're relying on the good faith and the intelligence, but also uh, the governance of various hospital systems and the like. And whether that is a good thing or a problem, I think, remains to be seen. Yeah, I think you raise a lot of really important uh, watchouts, um, especially about the health ecosystem. I mean, how do we do? How do we do that better? How do we? Um, there's a lot of different initiatives, um, it, just in the United States alone. Different agencies working on um, these important topics and questions. How do we corral those groups together? How do we look at how things are help, working in the in the health system versus the innovative technology versus the regulators? Um, versus Congress, how do we how do we do that? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Secretary already left. Don't ask me about Congress, right? Especially <laughs> this week. Don't ask me about how to fix Congress. But here's what I'll tell you, right? Is to say there are various problems and pivot points here, and we have to kind of keep our eye on all of them and how they intersect. Uh, so, for example, take the example of bias, right? So this is a huge problem. There's a version 1.0 of the bias problem that's easy to spot. That mm -hmm. is to say, your training data. How diverse is it? What have we done to make sure it's diverse? And there's a uh, stick approach, which is to say, actually, it's problematic and we won't approve this if you don't show us that your training data represents the entirety of the United States. But then there's also the carrot question. 
How do we incent the collection of more broad data from the population mm -hmm. that really reflects our population? But the version 1.0 problem is in some ways the easy problem. I can look at a data set and I can see who the members are and I can see how diverse it is. The version 2.0 and 3.0 problems are much more subtle. And I'll give you one example. This great paper done by Milanathan, Obermeyer, and a couple others uh, a couple years ago looked at an algorithm that was basically figuring out which patients who've been discharged from a hospital ought to get more care. So when should we refocus care? And uh, what they found was that even though the algorithm was blinded as to the race of the patients, when it came to white and black patients of the same health need, it prioritized white patients. Why did it do that? Turns out there was an early decision that was extremely reasonable on paper, which was to say, when we're going to measure and train the system on health need, we're going to use healthcare cost as the proxy. So we're going to tell it, which is a reasonable thing. Patients who are coming in and costing more tend to have higher health needs, except it turns out the healthcare costs of black patients and white patients, even at the same level of sickness in the United States, is vastly different because of access, because of care-seeking behavior. So this kind of bias, what they call label bias, much harder to spot, harder to test for unless you look for it. And when you multiply this on many, many other axes, quite difficult. Who's going to make sure that this kind of testing is done? Who's going to make sure it's done well? And how do we train people to think about this ahead of time? This is a formidable challenge, but not one that is particularly well suited for FDA. And that's why I think the alphabet soup of agencies, plus the tort system, plus internal governance by patients, by physicians and the like, is necessary. What we really want is machine artificial intelligence with a human touch. And we can't lose that human touch because that's so much of what medicine actually is. Yeah, that's exactly, <laughs> that's a key point here. Um, you know, I've, I know that other jurisdictions are looking at sort of how best to corral different agencies and, and kind of having a group approach. Would something like that potentially work here in the United States? You know, I, I, I'm, like I say, I remain an optimist, but I'm trained as a lawyer, so I'm trained to be yes. a cynic. And here I want to just kind of make also the point about the fact that we have, we don't live in a system of healthcare that's universalized. Mm -hmm. We have nine different healthcare systems, at least in the United States, as I often say. And the idea of corralling all of this together is tricky. And it's tricky also because there are different incentives for different players in this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But certainly, it would be foolhardy for one agency to charge forward, ignoring all these other pieces that are going on. I often say, compared to driverless cars, right? So driverless cars have a lot of complexity to it, but somebody makes the car and makes the system that is the artificial intelligence, somebody purchases the car, and then somebody's out there as a pedestrian or as another driver. It's an ecosystem that's fairly cabined and a few players, and you can focus it. With healthcare, it's 12 or 13 different players at once. Mm -hmm. And even being very well-meaning and trying to adjust something, like what's the liability for a physician if there's an adverse event due to artificial intelligence? If you only focus on that piece, you might basically create much worse problems at other kinds of levels. So it's good that we have some coordinating in the federal government already going on. And I'd love to see more of that. And I'd love to see more of that also with industry, with payers, with state government, really coming together to try to deal with this. But it's a much more formidable challenge in the United States than somewhere like France or Canada or Germany. Yeah, I think you raised some really important questions about, or points because of the universal health care. Um, and I think having all of those stakeholders at the table is really important. Um, 
and, and not losing sight of the fact that we're really doing this in service of patients, specifically when you're talking about medical artificial intelligence. Um, if you don't think about how do we continue to strike the right balance between innovation um, while also um, promoting and and protecting the public health um, and making sure they're safe. Um, we're not gonna get that product to, to those patients. Um, super important and having the right voices at the table um, because not one group necessarily has all the right expertise. Um, so it is one of those places where really all of the best minds need to come together and think about how do we do this in service of patients. So if I could just pivot a little bit, you also do a lot of research and thinking in um, health equity space. How does that um, relate to this topic? Could you give us some thoughts on you know, the impact of artificial intelligence on health equity? How can we do this better? What are some considerations to think through? Yeah, so some of the stuff I've said already about bias I think is front of mind, this idea of building systems that reduce bias. And I say reduce, and I can say this, so I'm a JD, so I do have a doctorate, but it's not a real doctorate. So I respect <laughs> real doctors, right? So same as the grain of sand, same with the grain of salt. But here's what, it turns out that AI makes mistakes. It turns out that AI is hard to explain why it's doing what it's doing. Turns out AI is highly biased in some instances, but guess what? All those things are also true about American physicians, so I respect very much. So the question is not, the perfect should not be the enemy of the good. Mm -hmm. The question is how can we integrate artificial intelligence as a way of reducing all of these problems, including bias problems. One piece of that, I think, is you have to look at who is doing the building. You know, Anish Nin once said, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. And this idea of who the we is in that sentence who's doing the building. So how do we make sure we have teams that are diverse? How do we make sure we have teams where bias is not the last thing you look for in the design, but at the very beginning? And how do we think about how incentive structures kind of push us to certain kinds of designs, right? Are there needs of certain populations that we are not designing for because they're not big enough market or the like? And how do we, when we have that gap, how do we fill the gap? That's the kind of thing that I think we have to be very thoughtful and very forward looking on. But it really starts at the very beginning of the process, not at the back end where you can just solve the bias mm -hmm. at the last minute. It's the question of what are you trying to do and how is it serving these communities? Thanks, some um, really important words. So as we're coming to the end of our time now, are there any last thoughts that we haven't covered that you have a whole host of policymakers and physicians and health execs and patients here, uh, pa patients like my dad who's in surgery now, what do we need to think of that we haven't covered yet? You know, maybe the only thing I'll say is that this is an incredibly exciting time to be in this. Like ChatGPT has changed my life and the life of my students, the life of the teachers across America. It wasn't even on our radar a year ago. But what we need is to be nimble, right? Mm -hmm. FDA is a slow-moving agency. It's careful. It looks at everything very carefully. As you know, getting a drug or device to market is a slow-moving process. That's not the timeline of Silicon Valley. And as these two things intersect, we have to be ready to have rapid regulatory responses, even if sometimes we're going to get it wrong in first blush. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I think it's really capturing that every person's expertise is important right now at the table and working with FDA. I've talked to my FDA colleagues too. They want those voices at the table. They want um, other you know, perspectives at the table so we can get this right. But it's gonna take some time and that's okay, but let's move forward in service of patients. So please join me in thanking Professor Cohen today for joining us and your Thank thoughts. Thank you all so much. And thanks for your time today. And now, 
Back to Washington Post Live. Well, good morning and welcome back. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. And joining me on stage are Drs. Wayne A.I. Frederick, the President Emeritus for Howard University and Professor of Surgery, and Kathy Ann Joseph, Surgical Oncologist and Professor at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So Dr. Joseph, uh, I'd like to uh, ask you first about the topic of breast cancer. And uh, with these conversations, I always like to lay out the good news first, which is that, that mortality rates for across the board for women of all races have been steadily going down, um, which is great. Yet we still see uh, this gap between black women and white women. In particular, black women are around 40% more likely to die from breast cancer than white women. Do we know why that is? I wish we knew the, that there was one answer for that, but there isn't. Um, it's multifactorial. Um, there is a lot of discussion about some of the biological factors that um, black women are more likely to be diagnosed with a certain subtype of breast cancer called triple negative, which is much more aggressive. Uh, we can't treat that breast cancer, that type of breast cancer with what we call hormonal therapy. So the only um, way to treat that cancer is with chemotherapy. Uh, but there are um, many socioeconomic factors that play a role. Um, there is, uh, we have to take into consideration access. That is a huge issue um, for many black women and many other um, uh, medically underserved women. If you do not have uh, health insurance, um, if, you, um, if there are other social, social factors that are involved in, um, that impede your, a woman's ability to go for that mammogram in the first place or follow up with abnormal results, your job, taking care of kids and so forth, um, and that leads to a delayed diagnosis, uh, that is going to impact on the stage that you are diagnosed with and ultimately um, mortality rates. And so we know that though these interactions play a role in this um, widening gap or this gap that we continue to see despite all the treatments that we now have in our armamentarium for breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Frederick, I know you have conducted a lot of research on narrowing racial disparities in cancer care. Uh, can you lay out for us, you know, when we're obviously many different kinds of cancer, which ones have the, the widest racial disparities? Yeah, you know, prostate cancer is the first one that comes to mind. The American Cancer Society puts out their cancer data every year, and there's a lot to celebrate in terms of uh, improving mortality across the board for so many cancers. However, um, there's a widening gap, not, not just a study gap, but a widening gap in black men um, with prostate cancer. And some of that comes from a little bit of confusion. Um, we've had a U.S. Prevention Task Force um, data on how we should screen um, at what age and what we should do in terms of intervention. And unfortunately, um, I think to some extent that probably has hurt the outcome for, for black men as they continue to die from it. I would say some of the complex GI cancers that I take care of um, also have a very persistent and, and very concerning gap. So patients with pancreatic cancer, African-Americans um, are, are doing worse. I think some of that has to do with some of what was pointed out in terms of being diagnosed later and not being um, necessarily positioned to get into the right types of clinical trials or have access to certain centers. I trained at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and I, I worked at the University of Connecticut before coming to, to Howard, and I was shocked when I came to Howard. Um, within the first, 
I would say 22 months, I saw 21 women with fungating breast masses. I had never seen a fungating breast mass in all of my training in my fellowship or um, working at the University of Connecticut, but right here in the nation's capital, I saw that. And then the last thing I'll say is if you look at um, life expectancy um, outcomes and definitely influenced by cancer, a black male who lives in Ward 7 and 8 has a 22-year less life expectancy than a white woman in Ward 3. This is a pretty small city of just about 600,000 people, and that disparity right here in the nation's capital is pretty wide. Dr. Joseph mentioned something really interesting, which is the question of biological versus socioeconomic factors. And that's super, super interesting because as we're talking about disparities, there are so many factors at play here. But can you talk a little bit about biological factors that may play a role here in disparities in certain kinds of cancer? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, one is around nutrition. Uh, so if you look at what, seven and eight, you have about 150,000 people and you have probably two full-service grocery stores. So at Harvard, for instance, we sent our clinical nutrition science students to Ward 7 and 8 to shop with the residents there. You know, they quickly came back and said, I think we need to go to the corner stores. So when you look at what they are exposed to, you look at the risk factors for different types of cancers, and you also look at what they have to basically take in while getting treatment, it de definitely does not portend for a better outcome. And that's an example where um, some of that disparity is going to be persistent just because of nutritional factors, as an example. Uh, so on that note, Dr. Joseph, can you talk uh, a little bit about some of the structural barriers that affect care for, for cancer patients? Um, and actually, sort of concurrent to that, we're talking about there's this issue of screenings and whether people are getting screened and then care once they are diagnosed with cancer. Sure. Um, you know, one of the things that we're trying to address at NYU is how do we address these barriers? It's one thing to say they're they're there, but what are we going to do about it? And you know, once we have a woman in, t in their system, um, we want to make sure that they, and they're diagnosed with breast cancer, we want to make sure they complete their treatment. And then we know that there's a whole population, we recognize there's a whole population out there of women that are just, we're not seeing, we're missing. And we want to make sure that they get screened. And, if they're, and we want to make sure that we're able to um, get them in and get them in and get them treated before they are presenting with large masses, these fungating masses that Dr. Frederick uh, referred to. So uh, we, have, uh, we have a navigation program that we, we started um, about seven years ago, and that's modeled after um, uh, the, um, uh, what Dr. Friedman, who was the actually the father of patient navigation. Um, uh, uh, he started this maybe about uh, now 20, 25 years ago. And what we do is we, um, we are, all our navigators go out in the community, educate our patients about screening, and actually help them set up appointments for screening. Not only that, they assist patients who are diagnosed with breast cancer get through the whole continuum of care. So it's not just in the hospital system and not just in the community, but the whole continuum. It's a we call it a community clinical linkage model. Okay, and what they're doing is they're assessing all of these women, both in the community and in the in the uh, hospital setting, for barriers. They do a barrier assessment, so we are able to see what is going to impede their ability to either get a screening mammogram or to finish complete their treatment. And um, and it takes it doesn't take that long to do, maybe not even three minutes. And so our navigators are able to say, okay, is it transportation? Is it um, 
uh, is it childcare? Is it their job or something else? And the number one thing, and I'm in New York, the number one problem overwhelmingly by far is transportation. And that's in New York, New York City, where we have one of the largest um, transportation systems. And that's because, and most of it is for many of our patients that are in Brooklyn, where they live in what we call two fare zones. They have to take a bus, two trains, um, or even just getting from one part of Brooklyn to the other, where the trains are not so close to where they live. Um, so we are really able to address these barriers by either getting them ambulance services for the cancer patients, um, where even taking a subway would be a problem if they have neuropathy from the chemotherapy getting them Uber services. Um, then for uh, food instability, many of our patients are hungry. That is another issue. Food cards, we're talking about nutrition. Um, and uh, for insurance issues, um, for those who are eligible, getting them onto Medicaid or emergency Medicaid. So we do have to address these issues because they will fall out. And we used to say in the past, I remember when I was training, I used to hear many patients were considered non-compliant. And I used to that used to bother me when I was in training that patients were non-compliant when they didn't come back for their uh, appointments, and it wasn't that they were non-compliant. Many of these patients just um, couldn't make it. They had jobs. They if they didn't, they have jobs where um, they're being paid under the table. If they don't show up, they get fired. So we have to be really uh, aware of the social circumstances of these patients. And Dr. Frederick, I mean, that seems actually heartbreaking to me that someone would, uh, you know, start on a course of cancer treatment and then not complete it. Um, how often do you see that in your practice, and what do you see as the reasons for that? Yeah, I would say some 25 to 40 percent of patients have some kind of challenge along the way. Uh, as you saw in the video, um, that 40-year-old mother of five, uh, there was an example. I mean, I, when I discussed all her treatment, I never discussed um, at that point her social situation. I, it was never an issue for, in my mind that she would not be able to show up for chemotherapy. But the practicality of it is you have to buy groceries and feed five kids. Uh, and you not going to work to get chemo for four hours, not feel well, not probably be able to go the second day. That's two days of wages that are critical. And so I think there's some very practical aspects. And all of it still comes back to you know, information and access. I, I think that for certain communities, that information, their language barriers, where they don't get the information. And for some of the communities, I think, quite honest, we don't necessarily have a culturally competent healthcare system that is listening uh, to all of these patients. Prior to coming here, I was making teaching rounds with, with my students, six black students from all over the country. And I said to them, does it matter in presenting the patient whether the patient is black or white? And they all put their hands up. And I said to them, you think every medical school in the country thinks that? And they all put their hands down. Meaning that whether you're a white student who comes to Howard or a black student, you're gonna get a culturally competent education where we're gonna try to sensitize you that beyond what the concept of, is of the biology and the treatment, you have to talk to patients about their social circumstances and make plans that accommodate them. And that's why we don't have enough of these patients participating in clinical trials, for example. So we come up with these methodologies, these treatments, we never take into consideration whether or not a patient is gonna be able to go five days a week to get radiation. That's, that's never part of the trial design. The trial design is, this is what we wanna deliver and the patient has to fit in around that. And I think that that has continued to make the barriers um, be persistent. 
Right, so we've been talking about the issue of cancer treatment, but just going quickly back to the issue of screening, because we know that that's so crucial. Uh, Dr. Joseph, I'm curious, I uh, wanted to ask you about um, sort of the, the gender gap in, in screening. And my sense is that women maybe are I don't know, more, uh, more get, get screened more often perhaps than men. I wonder if that's true. I know that women are often the healthcare decision makers, uh, but what do we see in terms of that? And then have we seen uh, the, an impact since the pandemic in terms of screening? Well, yes, um, women are more likely to, you know, if you're talking about gender only, yes, women are more likely to, um, uh, to follow up with their doctors and get screened compared to men. And, and there have been, um, there have been programs where if you want to get men into for like for prostate screening and so forth, they sort of say, hey, you got to get the get the women, go to the wives, right? Or go to go to the women and they will get their their husbands in or their partners in because sometimes, you know, that's that's the way to get to the men. Right. So that's that that is one way approach to to getting the men in sometimes. And, you know, uh, you know, we're still we're still suffering for the, for the effects of covid. Um, and I, I we're, we're it's going to be a lag um, before we get our screening rates up and we're still and there are going to be um, I, I, it was just published the mortality rates that we're seeing from uh, cancer because of the fact that we lost so much ground with screening um, you know from 2020 2021 so um, we just we have to expect it and we still have a lot of work to do to get people to say, you know, um, to get over that inertia and say, you got to get back into screening. You got to get back into regular screening. Um, we just have to do, we have work to do. Well, and Dr. Frederick, when we're talking about screenings, wh where do you see the biggest need here in terms of getting people in, improving public awareness to make sure that they're complying with that recommended schedule? Yeah, you know, it's broad-based. I mean, we're in October. Everybody knows it's Breast Cancer Month. Uh, NFL players are wearing pink, et cetera. But most people can't tell you when um, Prostate Cancer Month was. Some people say it's November. It's actually it was September. I don't think mm -hmm. any of us heard much about it in September. It's the second leading cause of death for males in this country. So one, I think, again, back to information, I don't think we do a good job of promoting what needs to be done and why. The second thing is I think we have to change our paradigm around um, screening a little more quickly to meet the needs, right? Chadwick Boseman, who was a Howard alum um, and died of a colorectal uh, metastatic uh, cancer um, would not have qualified for screening based on the guidelines. Ibrahim Kendi, um, who wrote the book on anti-racism, um, also has a state for colon rectal cancer for which he's been treated successfully thus far. Those are two young African-American males with access who would have no reason to have been screened for colorectal cancer because of their ages. They both were just around 40. So some of that has to do with do they know their family history? You know, um, was there genetic testing that they could have had within their family? So there's so much more, I think, about um, the screening. And yes, you know, men may be more resistant, but I think there's an information gap as to the why and also the prominence of it. So I think we have to do a better job, I think, of promoting uh, men's health um, and wellness overall, to be quite honest. And just a caveat on that. The fastest, the fastest leading cause of death in this country or group probably is white men between 25 and 40, primarily related to drug addiction, suicide, et cetera. You don't hear very much about it. That's a disparity. 
we, most of us probably don't recognize that concept, but if we don't intervene and do something about it, that's also going to be another area where the gap is going to increase. What you said about screening is interesting. So do you think we need more personal personalization when it comes to screening? I mean, it sounds like maybe some 35-year-olds should be getting screened and some people could wait till they're older. Yeah, you know, I, I, think we, I think it's multifactorial. I think we have to, edu you know, civics education in general is something that I'm big on in our high school, and that includes promoting health. We talk about uh, what we want to teach students technically, but we really talk about making them good citizens, and part of being good citizens is being healthy, talking to them about mental health, talking to them about their health, so that they develop good habits going into adulthood where they're not just waiting for information to come to them, but they're willing to go seek it. And I think that that's um, a big part of where our gap is. We get into the, you know, almost the bit of the hamster wheel of, you know, work, work life, et cetera. And we're not promoting that. And especially for wage workers, I don't think we appreciate just how much pressure they're under getting back and forth to work, the transportation, not having um, opportunities to get treatment on a Saturday or on days that we don't work. We're talking about a four-day work week, but we really are talking about what we want to fill that fifth day with. And I don't hear a lot of employers, for instance, talking about on that fifth day, we want you to go get a mental health screening or go get your, your screening on that day. I think we have to start promoting those things as much as we talk about a four-day work week. We need to talk about a, maybe a one-day health day in that uh, four-day work week as well. Mm -hmm. And if I could just piggyback on what Dr. Frederick said about the screening, I do think that the messaging does need to be more clear. And even for breast cancer, there's so many different organizations that have screening guidelines. It's confusing to patients. It's also confusing to the, the primary care doctors. You're saying they're conflicting they're, They conflict, guidelines. right? And you know, many of you may be aware that the USPSTF just revised their guidelines again. So they revised it back down from 50 to 40. Um, it was 40, then it went back up to 50, and now it's back to 40. And, um, uh, and so, you know, there, we, we just still need to have some clear messaging so that the pay, you know, so women actually know when should I screen? Is it 40? Is it 45? Is it annual? Is it every two years? Um, you know, black women, we know that black women are more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer at an earlier age. And I, I think what's also important in the messaging, and we're, I think many of us who take care of cancer patients are really happy that it's moved back to 40, is we would like to actually see it be every year screening, but USPS still does every other year, is the risk assessment should be part of this as well. And that's what Dr. Frederick alluded to, is that women should know by the age of 25 or 30, they should have a risk assessment with their PCP to know whether, whether they're at high risk or at elevated risk based on their family history or not, um, because they may need to be screened earlier. Um, they may need genetic testing and so forth. And I think that message is really, we focus on the screening, but risk assessment is also important. That's such an, this is such an interesting topic because it's yeah. been so controversial and there's such a spirited debate, it seems. Yeah. Uh, why do you think there are so many different opinions about this? Because it seems like there's those that say, too much screening, we're gonna freak women out. Some that say we need more screening. Why, why are there so many different opinions about this? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of focus on finances, right? I mean, we look at what we spend out as a percentage of our GDP on healthcare, but a lot of it we don't, we don't spend on prevention. Yeah, we spend probably more on the last year of life for the average American than we do on prevention. That right there means that we have a, a misguided um, allocation of resources. And so when, when I think some of these organizations look at where we're spending that money, they think, well, why screen a 40-year-old woman when 
only a smaller percentage. But what we fail to realize is we're very willing when somebody has a stage four cancer to throw the kitchen sink at it, uh, to extend their life for two, three months. And, you know, I'm not sure, again, it's probably an ethical debate, but I think that's the crux of it, you know, kind of how people look at the finances. And ultimately, we should be amplifying people's humanity and not putting a price tag on their life. Any final thoughts on that, Dr. Joseph? No, I completely agree. I also think that there's a lot of debate about, um, you know, we get we can get into the weeds about the... Um, the false negatives and false positives of, 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 of screening mammographies and having to do unnecessary biopsies and so forth. A lot of this data is old. It's based on old technology when we use um, analog machines for mammographies. Now we're, we have so much new technology for screening. So I don't think we can be, we can use that, these old, these old, um, you know, these old, this old, these old, data that uh, um, that's used. And so now that we have like 3D mammography, um, uh, the, the screening rates, I, I don't know, I tell my patients, would you rather have a biopsy and have peace of mind? Or would you rather wait several years to get a mammogram, um, you know, 10 years to 50, but during the, that 40 to 50 range, you could have a cancer brewing. You know, I just... I, you know, I mean, I think for most of us who take care of cancer patients on a regular basis, it makes us, it made us very uncomfortable for, um, for us to have patients um, in that 40 to 50 window not get screened. And many of us still were hoping that patients were being screened during that time. Um, I think that the biopsy argument was just being really overblown. Um, because of the fact that our, the new technology that we had um, with 3D mammography, tomosynthesis, is just so much better than what it was in the 80s. Mm. Well, fascinating. Um, yeah. We are unfortunately out of time, and we'll have to leave it there. Uh, but Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick and Dr. Kathy Ann Joseph, thank you mu so much for being here with us today. Thank Good morning, everyone. I'm Akilah Johnson, a health disparities reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm excited to be joined on stage by Christy Turlington Burns, founder and president of Every Mother Counts. Christy, welcome to The Washington Post. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I want to go and start with, um, I know this topic is very personal for you. And you experienced a serious complication during childbirth, as we just heard. How did that experience inspire you to start Every Mother Counts? Well, it was a little bit of a journey after delivering my first child nearly 20 years ago. Uh, after a, a, a pretty normal um, pregnancy with lots of options for my care, um, I had the unexpected happen, which was I experienced a postpartum hemorrhage. Um, luckily for me, I was in a birth center within a hospital with a team of providers who worked together to address the complication and manage it. Um, but when I came through it, the first question I had was, what about all of the other mothers in the world, birthing people in the world who don't have access to this care and who don't have options and choices? Um, and it just made me want to learn more and do more. And that eventually led me to start Every Mother Counts. You know, and you've become so steeped in the issue. You could have started the organization and then kind of moved on to other things and let other people run it. Why have you become so steeped in, in the issues of maternal health? 
There are just not enough uh, voices out there talking about this issue. Um, when I started Every Mother Counts in 2010, the conversation around maternal health care as a crisis in the United States was not a conversation. Um, certainly globally, there was the beginning of you know, looking at the data. Um, and I started with a film, actually, which brought the faces and voices of the people most impacted um, to the front of that conversation. And I feel like that's still needed today, probably more than ever. Um, you know, this is an issue that is getting progressively worse in this country. Um, we spend more per capita on healthcare than any other nation in the world. And it's absolutely unacceptable to have the outcomes that we do. And for black and brown women in particular, who, as the secretary said earlier, I mean, two to three times more likely to die from a pregnancy complication than a white woman. That's just something that I can't tolerate. And in my lifetime, um, I, I, I can't imagine not doing. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that you so often hear, I so often hear when I'm talking to maternal health advocates, is they talk about how this is a lifespan issue, you know, how we tend to focus so much on this, this point of pregnancy. Um, but really, it is how women and pregnant people show up to pregnancy that really kind of affects um, or, or can have an impact on, on the maternal health outcomes. And, you know, we, at the post, I have to do, I'm gonna plug. Uh, we just ha are publishing a series on life expectancy and maternal health obviously plays a role in that. And one of the things that we've talked about is preventative care. And so I guess I am interested from what you have seen traveling throughout the country, talking to people in the US, why do we have such a high mortality and morbidity problem in the US? I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, um, it's complex in the sense that there are a lot of causes and reasons. Um, certainly insurance, big problem. A lot of women do not have coverage um, still. And that's hugely problematic when you're needing healthcare um, in this country. Um, chronic health conditions also have been raised, um, hypertension, uh, diabetes, obesity, huge factors that also um, complicate pregnancy. Uh, for women, um, racial, social, economic health disparities uh, are very prevalent. When I first started advocating on this issue, it would be like the last thing that I would say because there wasn't as much um, evidence or proof of these facts. But today, we know different. We know um, the impact of um, of racism in our institutions. Uh, just living in this country on a day-to-day -day basis. I think your piece today um, is specifically talking about weathering. Mm -hmm. It's real. Weathering is real. Um, also, you know, just so many women living in rural places in this country, I think just being far away from services, far away from people who might be able to uh, manage complications. And things change very quickly. Um, you can have a great experience, and like my own experience, like suddenly things change, things shift, and you need that care and you need it fast. Um, hospital closures, hospital you know, mergers, where someone is getting their care for their entire reproductive lives, and then suddenly that care is not available to them anymore. Um, you know, there, there's a, there, there are a lot of factors. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned weathering. And so that is, you know, when you think about kind of corrosive and toxic stress and how it wears down the body and how that is a process that starts in utero, it starts in the womb. 
Let's do a bit of comparison to the US and our peer nations. When you think about stress and kind of sources of stress, how, as you're traveling kind of globally tackling this issue, how do you see differences in the way birthing people are, are forced to deal with stress in the US compared to some of our peer nations? Gosh, I mean, I think stress in, in like very real stress, mm -hmm. uh, women are dealing with all the time, right? To be able to, um, have an opportunity to work and then to work and have an opportunity to actually make sure that their children or their families are cared for and have food on the table, et cetera. Um, these are like daily stresses that a, a lot of women and girls are dealing with every day all over the world. I think when it comes to healthcare, there are so many uh, places in the world where we work and where we have partners working in largely more rural settings, I would say who don't interface at all with healthcare unless it's an emergency. Um, and so there might be the first time that someone, like a pregnancy might be the first time, actually the first reason that they might have to interact with the health facility. And then I think like for many of us, just you know, even with information, even with options and choices, I think it's intimidating to be in a health setting, a healthcare setting, and there's a lot of judgment that comes into play with regard to women and the choices that they make coming in when they do, being judged for how they dress, how they look, what they do, um, and and I think that just adds another layer of stress. And so, um, and then just to get there, uh, you know, I've been with pregnant women on very tiny tuk-tuks or um, Boda vehicles, like very crowded. That those those vehicles or those tr um, modes of transport, they don't get you to the hospital quickly. They stop like they would, you know, on the local train, right? Every single stop. There's not that consideration of, oh, this person is in a state that they might need extra care or they might need a seat. Um, and so just like the physical burden of that. Um, as well, there are other factors, you know, like people aren't eating consistently. So to be pregnant, to not have access to clean water. I mean, many women that I've seen come to a facility, they arrive and they're just dehydrated. They have a UTI that's never been diagnosed. They don't know what that is. Um, so there's a lot of just misinformation or lack of information entirely. Women who haven't gone through secondary school, I like really have no idea um, how their bodies work, what they need to do at what phase of their um, of their healthcare. And so, you know, it's not to take away from anyone here in the United States, there are similar factors, right? Like you can even know and then still not have access to those care, that, those services or, or care. And so, um, yeah, I mean, stress is, it's, it's accepted in, in many parts of the world. You know, and on the flip side of that, when you think about how we mitigate and manage and handle stress, you know, and I'm thinking particularly in the U.S., that postpartum period, that kind of fourth trimester, as we call it, um, where we don't have paid time off, paid leave, kind of at a minimum, kind of at a national level. What do you see internationally in terms of the way pregnant people are cared for in that postpartum period that we could learn from that can kind of lower that burden of stress? Wow. Um, I mean, certainly the postpartum period is a, is a big opportunity, I would say. Um, there's been so much more of a focus globally um, on prenatal care, if one can access it, and then delivery. And then 
in our system and in so many other countries in the world, like mom is forgotten. If the baby is healthy, then that's the goal. And then suddenly you're on your own again. Um, I think, you know, extending coverage, uh, which is a big focus of our advocacy and in supporting of the Momnibus and the Moms Act and Midwives for Moms, like we're really trying to kind of make sure that comprehensive care, which includes the prenatal delivery and postpartum up to a full year would be ideal. Mm -hmm. um, more than 50% of the deaths are happening postpartum. So we're not really addressing we're not really addressing this issue if we're not looking at her well beyond um, the baby's arrival. Um, universal health care, surely, when we look at other countries where maternal mortality is not um, on the rise, that's what's, that's what's provided. People have access. They don't have um, barriers of, of insurance. They have midwives and other low-cost solutions um, and quality care that are more accessible from a cost perspective and also just an access perspective. Um, there's a lot we can learn there, certainly. You know, and when we think about what's happening here in the U.S., when we think about maternal deaths, you know, the CDC says that up to 80 percent are, are preventable. And then when you think about the near misses, there's a lot of research that says that up to for every maternal death, there's up to 100 near misses that happen. And so I guess when we think about about this issue of preventability, what's getting in the way? Why aren't we able to prevent these deaths? Uh, I mean, I think. By investing more in the communities themselves, right? Like there are solutions in the communities, and those individuals that are that are seeing patients, seeing clients at the community level, have a much better understanding, uh, an already established trust level um, that allows them to see more uh, in the life of the patient, in the light of in the life of their. Um, client, and I think by having that information and by building that trust, um, there are more opportunities to infuse information, to create more support systems um, that would continue. The continuum of, of care is really, really essential. Um, I think, you know, it's like many of the hospitals that, that we've sort of engaged with in terms of trying to partner and trying to address some of the gaps that exist, it's like what happens outside of the institution walls is something that nobody wants to take responsibility for. And as a society, I think that we have to band together in order to make sure that we are addressing these societal issues and challenges like housing, like transportation, um, like food security. Um, there are so many factors that are making people unhealthy in this country, and then we're not giving people the option to choose pregnancy um, and to enter it uh, in a healthy, um, strong way to be able to handle the unexpected and the unplanned for, um, and the long life of a child. We have a, a grantee partner named Chanel Portia Albert who says postpartum um, is forever, and it is. And so when we're thinking about pregnancy, we're sort of putting people in this like little tiny niche of their life. And actually, the impact of carrying a child is forever. Um, and so, yeah, we want people to get stronger, be st as strong as they can when they enter this phase of their lives. And then um, that sets them up for the most opportunity to be successful and to care for their families and you know, be a thriving citizen of the world. What about the idea of disrespect 
and disrespectful care. You know, you touched a little bit on um, discrimination and the racism and that, that plays a role, particularly in the U.S. and maternal health and, and stigma. How does that coincide with what's happening in hospitals and, 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 and the preventability of these deaths and near misses? And we've learned a lot from women sharing stories of disrespect in our institutions um, that can prevent them from seeking care early, earlier on, which could be life-saving. Um, but it's really important for us to be looking at because um, anything that we can do to invite people into our health system, we need to do, right? And so like medical training that is now integrating um, training around bias and, and, and disrespect is really important. I think for the first time you're seeing disrespect on a global stage, actually, um, in the media being called out. Um, there's a, a survey called Listening to Women, um, which you know repeatedly women are telling the story of, I knew what was happening in my body or I knew there was something wrong. I told my physician and my physician ignored me. My physician like belittled me, my physician um, basically shut me down. And that kind of stress um, and disrespect has a huge impact, not only in the pregnancy, but ongoing in terms of our trust for a medical system that we are told to trust and rely on. If it's not there and you have that experience once, likely you won't trust it again. But many of us have that repeatedly. Um, many American women are telling stories of, you know, literally being shunned, being disregarded, being turned away, um, and that's causing women to die. It also sounds like, if I heard you right, that's not just as unique to the U.S. That sounds like that is no, kind it's of a, global. A global. It's global. Issue. And then you also have, you know, the providers themselves that are trying to practice in a dysfunctional system. So, you know, it, it, nobody's winning um, in this conversation, really. You know, the providers are understaffed um, globally. Uh, they are not provided the same kinds of support systems either. So trauma exists within the people needing the care and also within the people who are providing that care. And you're just seeing a tremendous amount of burnout um, coming through pandemic, but even b before that, um, and with hospital closures and with less, less. I mean, <laughs> there are so many counties across this country where there are, are, there's not an obstetric provider at all. So women are forced to drive hours um, to deliver a baby or to have a postpartum uh, checkup, which is also preventative of them seeking that care. Because again, you're home, healthy baby, we're good. You know, and so when you think of maternity care deserts in the US, and you've touched on how internationally and globally they're maternity care deserts, what are some of the lessons that you think we can learn or implement from you know, abroad? We, we tend to, in the US, export our expertise, but what are some of the, what's some of the expertise we should be importing? One of the things that I think of often is how I've seen such incredible and comprehensive um, attention taken to audits um, once a woman has died in a community where like just even the most rural places of Peru or in Ethiopia, I've seen it, I've seen it in, um, in Guatemala, where like if a death happens, everyone in the community 
comes in to understand what happened. How could they do different the next time? And hospitals are doing this. There's maternity, um, there's maternal mortality review boards now in most states. Um, so there is more attention taken to it, but it's not integrating the voice of community um, or patient families who are also traumatized when a mother um, is lost. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from places that don't have don't have many resources where they really are so committed and understand that everyone has a role to play in order to prevent these unfortunate um, uh, endings. Um, I think also, I mean, the continuum of care that I mentioned before is so critical. And so um, what we learned through pandemic, I think, is a lot of our partners started practicing their um, their patient interaction over smartphones and, and iPads, et cetera, sending home uh, blood um, cuffs, you know, to be able to like have that partnership where a, a mother or client could understand what's happening in their own body, but also stay connected throughout the pregnancy um, with their provider, someone that they'd built trust with. Um, sometimes that technology allowed them to not have to find childcare, um, you know, travel very, very far. But it also just kept this continuous line of communication, which I think was so important. I think um, women feel very isolated in pregnancy or in the postpartum period. And I think having that ability to pick up the phone or to be able to see someone who's checking in on them, who is interested in them and their health, and not just the child that you brought into the world, but really the dyad um, is so critical. So something that I think um, that, that warm touch is something that we advocate for and are really you know, trying to make sure that there isn't that isolation, especially with the mental health component in the postpartum. You know, your organization's 2022 impact report argues that maternal health is a human right. Talk to us a little bit about, about what that means. I mean, I, I, I was a student of public health um, before I started the organization, and I think the human rights lens was um, something that we were studying public health through at that time, and I think it was um, so clear to me um, looking at the issue of maternity care that, in fact, access to health care is 100% in my mind uh, a human right. I mean, it's like the most basic kind of care, food, water, shelter, those kinds of things. Health, public health, access to care, services, information, human right. We all deserve access to that information that can allow us to be empowered to take care of ourselves to the best of our ability that we can. You know, we, well, you touched on this, but I'm going to, I'm going to, it's a reader question, an audience yeah. question, so I want to see if we can dig a little deeper. And it's from Carolyn in Pennsylvania, and she is asking how innovation and technology can improve maternal health, especially in rural areas. Like I said, you touched on that a little bit. Um, and how can we make technology accessible and affordable? That's a really good point. Um, I, in many states, right, broadband is not accessible to a lot of people. And I think, you know, I live in a city like Wi-Fi and broadband are very accessible to many. And I think we forget that in the United States, so much of this country is rural and that people don't have that access. Um, I think it needs to be it needs to be advocated for. It needs to be included in the conversation like we're having today. Um, 
you know, to, to know that information or to, that solutions or that care exists, but to not have access to it, information right now is probably the, the most important thing that we need access to in addition to the transportation and in, in addition to the human um, expertise and care that comes into the individuals that are providing that care. Um, but that's the link. The technology is the link to that care. And it sounds like the information. I mean, you were talking about kind of the lack of information of, 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 of how the body works and how that can contribute to your overall health and well-being. Absolutely. I mean, if you're not... Uh, if you're not getting sexual and reproductive health information throughout your formative years and your um, adolescence as you come into um, your adult body, um, without that information, you can't care for yourself. You can't protect yourself. You can't keep yourself in good health. And so, um, you know, starting as early as we can with information and then access to services. Um, and again, there's still a problem with like, Mothers might be able to get access to care and services once pregnant, but where is that access before you're pregnant or following? You know, and we have time for just one question, final question. And so I want to ask, you know, what changes do you think need to be made in the U.S. health system so that we really can address this issue in a, in a systemic way? So many. Um, I, I do think the education piece is really important not only for um, the general public, but also in terms of our rights and understanding what what we have um, a voice to be able to do. Self-advocacy is incredibly important, and it's something that we also work on. Um, but I think also just the training of you know the workforce. Right, we are very focused on um, trying to build and sustain the workforce that is there. Um, uh, there's not the pipeline that we'd like there to be providing this kind of care for women and families. And so um, to make sure that there are new people coming in and that they're getting trained in a way that is really looking at um, these issues in a holistic way, thinking about disparities, thinking about bias, um, before they get into a system where they don't have the supports <laughs> and they don't have the resources to stay healthy themselves, um, I think it's really important in those early in those early, early years, those formative years, to be setting those examples um, and to also be teaching, you know, what does respectful care look like? What does compassionate care look like? Um, as well, like, our system doesn't allow for the time that it takes to get to know patients. I wish that could be changed, um, and that will change, that will, that will take us, you know, <laughs> like, making the insurance situation a better one, mm -hmm. um, one where we understand, um, you know, how problematic it is and how much it shuts people out of getting care. Um, but that's something much bigger than what Every Mother Counts can do alone. So it's something that I think we all need to advocate for. Absolutely. Christy, we are just about out of time. And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, but thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.